finally, the day that he got home, I remember it all. It was um, October 15th. It was like half rainy, half sunshine. I know there was a rainbow outside. It was amazing. I cried. Um, Ash cried. The foster family cried. This is Abby, who lives in Kansas. And she's talking about the day she was reunited with her son, Ash. He was removed from her home by the state and returned to Abby three years later when he was seven years old. It was amazing because he saw his room for the first time, all that stuff. And I like, I had spent like a week and a half, like getting his room ready, like perfect. Like he has LED lights and Avenger masks everywhere. And like, he was just so excited, but he still doesn't sleep in that room. He still sleeps with me. I don't want to make it seem like it was easy getting him back at all because it was not. It was three and a half years of pure hell because everybody was telling me that I couldn't do it. My lawyer was even telling me that I was in denial and that I was not going to be able to do it. Nobody had faith in me because my substance abuse was bad. And I was like, you know what? I'm I'm going to do this. Like, I'm not going to let anybody tell me that I can't get my kid. Like, he's mine and I'm a good mom and um yeah that's when I just I did everything different and that's what you have to do in recovery I had to change everything the people that I was around the my mindset like I had to instead of having such a fixed mindset I needed a growth mindset um I I just changed because I wanted it needed it and I didn't want Ash to be in the foster care system I could do it. I knew I could do it. Huh, I didn't realize well, that's that. an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that. So let's talk about that. Let's talk no, about I think that. you need to come over, stand in my agree shoes. Agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Today on the show, American families and the child welfare system. Every two minutes in this country, a child is placed in foster care. How and why those decisions are made differs from state to state. There's not one national system of child welfare. But the entire patchwork of state and local systems shares one thing in common. The kid comes first. And if a caseworker believes the child's safety is at risk, the default response in virtually every instance is to remove that child from the home. Once that happens, the chances of that child ever returning home drop dramatically. Even though many child welfare agencies say that reuniting families is the best outcome and their top priority. We want kids to be with their families and we want those families to be strong, supportive, and safe. Is it possible to have a system that does both, protects children and prioritizes families? If Abby had known the national statistics, she might have been even more discouraged when Ash was taken into foster care. Children return to their parent or guardian less than half the time. In Abby's case, like so many, the problem that brought child welfare services to her door was drugs. She was a single mom. Ash was her whole life, her top priority. But she was dealing with a lot of personal trauma, too. Addiction is not something we choose. I didn't wake up one day and say, hey, I'm going to do this because, you know, this is going to make my life better. No, it it was me having so much pain inside that I would do anything to escape that pain. I was very um, lost and I had a lot of shame and um, not a lot of support. And it was just really hard. Someone reported Abby's drug use to child welfare services. She went to a treatment program in hopes of keeping custody of her son, but I got the news in rehab that he was taken away from me. I did not know what was going on. All I got was the call from his grandma crying and, you know, telling me, like, they just took him, they just took him and all of this stuff. And that was really hard because, you know, I was trying to get help and um, I felt completely powerless. Kansas is one of the states that places a priority on family reunification in cases like Abby's. But the moment Ash went to foster care, a clock started ticking. Abby would have about a year to prove herself and her home fit for her son before the state would start looking to terminate her parental rights. 
There is not one standard list of things a parent must do to regain custody. Typically, a caseworker decides. And Abby clashed a lot with hers. I was very resentful, and I wanted to do things my way. And I thought everybody was wrong and that, you know, everybody was crazy and all of this stuff. And um, it was just really, really hard because I didn't get to see him that much. Abby's caseworker insisted that she be sober for six months straight before she could get Ash back. Whenever she failed a drug test, her visits with Ash were cut short. It's like every time we got close to getting him back, just, I was not working my recovery. I didn't have anything to hold on to. And I would slip back. Or like, I found out that he had moved from four different foster families in the time that he was there. He was in four different foster homes during those couple of years. Yeah, and that is hard for a mother to, I mean, it makes you hate yourself. And if you already hate yourself, like it's, it was just a cycle of shame and of hatred. And, you know, every time I would get better, it would just get worse and, um, and like, Having him, you know, cry, like, why are you leaving me and all this stuff is like, it just made me feel even worse. So then it's like what all I knew how to cope was to do as substances. So that's what I would do. Abby had this list of things she had to do to get Ash back, including sobriety and finding a steady income. But she sometimes felt like the support to make it happen was lacking. It's like they give you this map on how to get there, but the map is missing pieces. When they told me that I needed parenting classes, that's great, but where do I get parenting classes? I Googled it and most parenting classes either have wait lists or they're really expensive. And it took me a really long time to finally find one that was free, just things like that. And like they say that that you need a stable income, stable job. They give you all these things that you need to do but there's not many resources for that. And I understand it's because they're understaffed. It's because they you know, don't have the time to sit with you and say, hey, here are some ideas. So I understand that part. I'm not mad about that at all. Still, it meant Abby frequently felt hopeless about her prospects for reuniting with Ash. At the end of the first year, her casework had seen enough promise in Abby's efforts to give her some more time. But two years in, she hit a new low. She was weeks away from having her parental rights terminated by the court. My addiction was bad. I was um, not able to keep a job. I was just doing pretty much everything wrong. <laughs> and I wasn't getting the help I needed. I knew I needed therapy and I um, just, I didn't get it. But um, I actually got incarcerated, uh, which was uh, one of the best things that ever happened to me. And I know that sounds really weird and backwards, but... Um, that was my restart. That was my humbling point. I remember that we were supposed to have a court hearing through the video and they were going to tell me that my rights were going to get terminated. And I remember that I got on my hands and knees and I prayed to God um, that I just surrender, that I'm done that I can't do this anymore, that I am so miserable and that I hated my life so much that I would do anything if I could just get a second chance. And that morning we went to video court and she um, pretty much gave me a second chance. (laughs) I know this sounds cheesy, but I mean, it really was a God thing. Like I just surrendered and I got help. Um, I was willing to do therapy. I was willing to actually listen. I started becoming teachable and staying teachable rather than thinking I knew everything and that they were wrong and I was right. Abby was sober when she left jail six months later, and she stayed that way. She trained to become a certified medical assistant, and she's now going to nursing school. Ash has been back with her since the end of 2021. And Abby thinks she's actually a better mother now. Oh, yeah. De- definitely. That's not even a question. Like, it's insane. I, 
I thought I was a good mom because like I was such, I did everything with us every single day. Like we would go to the pool, we would do so much stuff together, but I wasn't present. And this time, like I'm actually present. I have learned how to not just hear what he's saying, but listen to him. And he's learning stuff about me he never knew about. And I'm learning stuff about him that I never knew about. And it's beautiful. Like I am so grateful. And I um, I just can't say how, how much this opportunity has given me this. Like, it's just amazing. I don't know. Words can't describe it. Is there something you daydream about right now um, for you and him, like sort of a thing that you look forward to or sort of dream about in the future? Oh, yeah, we have we have a vision board, actually. Oh, yeah. What, what's on it? We are going to travel together and that we are going to get a house. He is very set on having a trampoline in the backyard of the house that we live in. And he wants to have three dogs and two cats. And he also wants to have a chinchilla. And he wants to have a statue of Iron Man in his room. (laughs) (laughs) How about about you? What do you you want? I envision us just staying together. I envision us just having a home and, you know, being able to help others and that's the one thing that I love. I just admire so much about Ashton because he's taught me so much. And he told me one day, he was like, mom, I don't know if you want to have more kids, but could we possibly like have foster brothers and sisters one day? And I was like, you know, at first, I, I mean, I was just, I mean, this is not the time. Like I'm, this, I mean, I'm not at any point going to do it right now, but like in the future, like maybe, but I thought it was just the sweetest thing that, he has such a, a huge heart and he understands this stuff and like he's just an amazing kid. I could go on and on about him. Well, I think you can probably take some credit for that for who he is. Yeah, but he gets a sass all on his own. Like I don't know where he gets that from. <laughs> she and her child are still my best success story uh, with this job to this day. Dalton Shump was Abby's caseworker, the one who insisted she be sober for six months straight, the one who saw enough potential in Abby's efforts to keep giving her another chance. Shump works for KVC, which is a nonprofit partnered with the state of Kansas to manage what happens after a child is taken into foster care. Shump's job is to get that child into a permanent situation, either back with the parent or adopted by someone else. In Kansas, family reunification is the initial priority. And you're going to work that goal for about a year before you consider other options. You know, most of the time, unless the parents, the biological parents, want to relinquish their rights before that point. Mm. For, so who's who are you advocating for primarily? The child, the parents? Like, whose side are you on? It, that's, again, another another hard part of the job. Because I am, I am both parents and the child's case manager. But I guess if I had to say... At the end of the day, I do have to pick it. It's a child um, because I, at the end of the day, I have to do what's best for that child. You know, I have to make that tough call. I have to make sure their needs are met, that they're safe, um, that I'm not sending a child back home, you know, into their home with any major risk concerns. You know, um, I am harder on my clients, so to speak. Um, and that's something I always told Abby, even though I was hard on her. I was like, look, I don't want to have to have you lose your child because I see how much love you guys have for each other. Um, I was like, but at the same time, I will not send your child home with you until you get it together. It's a heavy responsibility that makes for a lot of burnout. Shump's been on the job for three years now, which is a long stint in this line of work. It's a lot to bear. It's a lot to bear. It is. I mean, these are people's lives, you know, not just you know, mine. And there's a personal element for him. I was taken away from my biological parents because my, mo- my mother was um, addicted to uh, substances. I think primarily cocaine, I believe. Uh, and then my biological father, I think, was out of the picture right from the get-go. So uh, I grew up in the foster care. Well, I was adopted at a young age, probably like one or two. So, you know, I don't have that extensive history myself personally in the system. But even though I was adopted at that young age, my my adopted mother, who that's that, – I don't even – I don't view her as my adopted mother. That's my mom. The family I'm in is my family. That's all I've ever known. 
Um, but we still did do foster care for a good portion of my childhood up until I want to say probably I was till I was 12, 13 years old. Um, so I still did see these children from all ages, babies all the way to 17, 18 year olds coming in and, my, in and out of my home. Um, so that's, that's kind of why I got into it. I mean, I, I knew I've always wanted to work with kids and give back to the community. Um, so I think that's kind of how I fell into this job. Do you think that your personal experience with the foster care and adoption system having worked for you, that like you're biased in favor of foster and adoption because it worked so well for you? Right. No, I actually don't think that that's uh, at all uh, what kind of plays into my decision making when I'm working these cases. Um, because at the end of the day, um, and like I said, and I think Abby's case is something that completely attests to that, uh, to the fact that I don't have that biased opinion, um, is because at the end of the day, it's, it, this is all factually based. I mean, it's if these parents are doing what they need to be doing and they're providing that evidence and that documentation. Well, then that then I'm rewarding them. He was thrilled the day he was able to leave Ash with Abby for good. I congratulated her and I told her respectfully. I was like, I'm so proud of you. But I was, <laughs> I was like, respectfully, I don't ever want to see you again unless we run into each other at like Walmart or Target or something like that uh, with your child. Dalton Shump is a child welfare caseworker for the nonprofit KVC in Kansas. Sometimes removing children from a home is the only way to keep them safe. But what happens next to those kids will make all the difference in their lives. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. In the child welfare system, caseworkers are the first responders. They decide if it's safe to leave a kid in the home. And when they decide that it's not... It is the most heartbreaking thing. This is Molly Tierney, who has worked in child welfare for 25 years, part of that time as head of child welfare for the city of Baltimore. It is as if you are suffering a, a death. It is, it is just impossible to witness the grief of that kind of separation. And is, it is bewildering to, if you th- oversimplify it and think mother and child, it is bewildering to both of those people to separate them. No caseworker wants to do it, says Tierney, but they're in a bind. The problem that we're facing now is that we've put a single tool in their kit bag. That's either take the kid or leave the kid. How did r- removing a child become kind of the go-to solution in situations of crisis? I, in my, over the course of my career, uh, the default to uh, err on the side of caution and remove the kids was driven in large part by very high profile catastrophes and fear of them, right? So you get one bad thing, one terrible case. And those cases are awful, the kind of stuff you read about in the newspaper, really awful stuff. And this pushes um, jurisdictions to be quick on that trigger finger and to be under a lot of pressure to be quick on that trigger finger. Uh, and so it's almost as if it's reactive. We drifted into this reaction uh, out of fear. And swinging the pendulum back is all but impossible when that fear has taken root. The tragedy, says Tierney, is that removing a child because we're afraid they'll be harmed also causes harm. The trauma we cause by removal is, in my opinion, catastrophic. I'm not, even when we need to do it, it is still a catastrophic intervention. And, you know, the, the single data point that we should all know about when we feel strongly that children should be separated from their parents is know this. A child that spends a single day in foster care has a lower life expectancy than their peer who didn't. And I think if that isn't the most damning d- data point, right, that this, this thing we are doing of even telling ourselves, oh, it'll be temporary. That's not how kids think. All they have is now. They don't I mean, by definition, the, their brain chemistry is not wired to imagine, well, what will the impact of this be in t- this choice be in 10 years? Right? That's not how they think. All they're thinking about is right now. And it, it, 
it's, I don't have another word besides the catastrophe we are causing with this intervention. Catastrophic would imply also that it's irreparable. Like that the harm that's caused in that moment, you know, can't, can't be fully compensated for by a loving foster home, a loving adoptive home even. I, so I want to be really clear. I don't mean to say that people who spent any time in foster care are lesser than or damaged or damaged goods or can't, I don't know, grow up and be president. Because of course they can. I just think it is the case that the injury we are causing is a longstanding injury. That is, of course, on top of whatever trauma occurred that um, brought us to that decision, if we're just even talking about cases where this needed to occur. Um, the, the presence of that stress, it interrupts confidence of relationships to other people. Let's imagine that you're talking about a little kid, somebody under the age of four. Like there's stuff little kids got to be doing right then to later be able to do things like learn to read and, and hold a pen and write and do math, right? That's the part where they're sitting in a high chair and they're dropping something, someone's picking it up, that they're, the things around them are very familiar. It's the same pattern every day. Every day, the same person's coming to wake you up from your nap. Every day, someone's taking you to daycare. Like the, the repeated patterns that it frees up your resources for the mastery of things that are going to pay off in a few years when you're in first grade and somebody says, write your name. And when they don't get to do that, they're starting at a disadvantage from their peers. Before they can even get to the concrete tasks I'm talking about, like reading and writing, there's an enormous amount of work they do to stabilize themselves in the context of relationships, to stabilize the, who's going to take care of me? Like who, who's going to pick me up when I fall? Who's going to, who's going to know that when I cry this way, it means I'm in pain. And when I cry that way, it means I'm hungry. And when that's a great example. So when you are changing caregivers, and kids that come into foster care change caregivers too much, right? Like you get taken from your parent, you get put in a foster home, you get moved to an aunt's home, then you get moved to somebody else's home. Every time that happens, those caregivers have to relearn, you have to relearn. And that is, that is burdensome for a kid. And it's, uh, it drains their resources for the other things they need to do. And the, the experience of self-efficacy, the experiences of I can impact the things around me. Right, that I'm a player in my own life. There is a movement in this country to abolish foster care entirely. Tierney does not go that far. Because I have too much, uh, too much mileage of things that I have seen where, yeah, I would, if I could go back in time, I would have taken those kids again. But we should be putting far fewer kids into foster care. And Tierney thinks we could be intervening much earlier in a family's life to avoid the crisis that prompts removal in the first place. We'll talk later about how that might work, because it would be a pretty radical reimagining of the child welfare system. In the here and now, Tierney says the focus should be on getting kids out of foster care as fast as possible. I would say 12 months at the outside is what you're going for. Within 12 months, you want the kid home or you want the kid off on their way, just getting ready to be a private citizen. They, they shouldn't have the sense that their family stability is temporary. They need to know where they belong. And we need to close that chapter for them with great urgency. And what about situations where the parent is dealing with addiction, where a year maybe isn't enough time to get everything in order? Tierney says even then, the process can move faster than parents and caseworkers might expect. Like when we used to, in Baltimore, when we took kids into care, as soon as I took the kid in, we would get the kid's picture. Like we'd take a picture of the kid and I would write a letter to the mom and say, hey, mom, this is what I'm thinking about. I want you to put this picture up on your refrigerator so you and I can be thinking about this all the time. Because what I'm trying to do is get this kid back to you. Let's do this as hard as we can, because here's what you need to know. I'm going to try this for 15 months. And after that, I'm not going to try anymore. Hmm. I'm going to really try. I want you to really try with me because I am not kidding you. Test me. After that, I'm not going to make this baby suffer. I'm not going to make them. I'm not going to make them wait. So you don't make them wait either. Because what happens in child welfare is it's sort of, okay, well, let's try for three months. And I, okay, well, let's try for three more. All right, well, let's try for six more. Okay, well, it's not quite right. We'll try some more. All right, we'll try some more. That's not as clear and bright a finish line. It's not as clear and bright a boundary. 
And I think I believe what I saw people do day in and day out is when a boundary is laid clear, they act in their own best interest. Poor people, single moms, folks in child welfare, they're not any different than the rest of us. Human beings act in their own best interest. And when the options are laid plain, uh, they, they move. Molly Tierney ran child welfare for the city of Baltimore for a decade. She's now a partner at Accenture, where she consults on child welfare reforms. Keeping kids together with their siblings is another way to minimize the trauma of being removed from home. But about half of children in the child welfare system end up separated from one or more of their siblings. Lynn Price was placed in foster care as a baby and didn't even learn she had an older sister until she was eight and her biological mother wanted to regain custody of the girls. It was all too much for Price's eight-year-old mind. In fact, uh, I kept it so secret because I didn't want anybody to think I was a foster kid. I didn't want anybody to think that my parents weren't my parents. And I certainly didn't necessarily want to get to know this sister. And that, uh, you know, was troubling to me that I would have this new mother and this new sister Hmm. and the potential that I would be removed and placed back in a home of strangers. She and her sister, Andy, remained in foster care. And it would be years before they began to realize how much they had missed growing up apart. One weekend when Andy was in college, she invited Lynn to come stay the weekend in her dorm. And we had many, many conversations that weekend, learning about each other, learning that we had a lot of similarities with each other, which was, you know, very, very wonderful. And after that, uh, we made a point to start to get to know each other, whether it was visits where I would take business trips and she joined me on the road or we try to get our families together and have a bond that actually uh, came about very naturally. Their relationship proved especially important as the sisters aged and left the foster care system. Yeah, siblings can absolutely be a path to a successful adult life. The reality is all of the resources that you've had by being in foster care are mostly gone. And oftentimes the youth in foster care just want to put it behind them. And when they move on, it's the siblings that they trust the most. A number of states now have laws and policies that prioritize keeping siblings together. But there are a lot of practical barriers. One of the siblings might have special needs that a foster family isn't equipped to handle, for example. Or taking all of the siblings would exceed the number of children a foster home is licensed to care for. Or the children might be half-siblings, so relatives only want to take the child they're related to. In the mid-90s, Lynn Price and her sister Andy founded a week-long summer camp for siblings separated in foster care. It's called Camp to Belong. We have activities that build their sibling bond, that build their own independent confidence, and make it all right in their world so that they have childhood memories together to bring into their adult lives. Many grow up in the same communities with supervised visits, maybe once a month or something like that. Uh, And they may even go to the same schools, may even go to the same religious congregations, but they don't have everyday activities together. What makes Camp to Belong so unique is that the brothers and sisters have more than just an hour together. And because of the time over five nights and six days, they really, really get to know each other again and catch up on each other's lives. I can tell you about two campers, Randy and Kayla. Uh, Randy was just about getting ready to leave for the Marines. In fact, he was gonna be going the day after camp was over. His sister Kayla just adored him, and the social worker asked if they could come together to camp. Well, from the moment they both arrived, they were joined by the hip. Uh, When it came to horseback riding, Randy, believe it or not, was kind of scared, but Kayla asked if he'd go with her, and the next thing you know, he was on a horse. Uh, They said that was the first time in many, many years they spent that quality time together. 
And after camp, it was Randy who invited Kayla to his Marine Corps ball when he retired and walked her down the aisle at her wedding. So it really solidified their sibling connection. One of the activities we do is a birthday party where the kids will, you know, shop in a a store, if you will, where we have different kind of gifts that they can wrap for their siblings. And we have a big birthday party and give them a birthday cake. And most of them don't get to celebrate their birthdays together, maybe even acknowledge them. Each brother or sister gets one of the names of their other siblings. And they come into the store, if you will. And, you know, there's a conversation to be had. They may not remember the age of their sibling or if their sibling likes purple or pink or sports or books. So, you know, we do a lot of thinking and um, talking alongside with the siblings. They pick out a gift. They wrap the gift. They make a birthday card. And then it's usually on the third or fourth night of camp where we have a big party, all the birthday decorations, and we set all the gifts and cards on the tables. We escort each sibling group in, and then we sing happy birthday as we have a parade of birthday cakes and cupcakes that get to each sibling group, and everybody blows out their candles at the same time. And it just becomes a forever memory. At our first camp, it was the first birthday that Andy and I celebrated together. Andy is Lynn Price's sister, the one she'd been separated from throughout her childhood. They ran Camp to Belong together in the early years. And even as adults, it changed their relationship. It was the first time we'd share bedrooms and we'd get up in the morning and have our cup of coffee and go for a walk. So, uh, you know, we really wanted to be the role models of what the sibling bond can be. And still to this day, I go to many of the camps just to raise up the community and show the campers how they can have that relationship and how the sibling bond is really your longest relationship in life, oftentimes surpassing the parent-child relationship. Lynn Price is the founder of Camp to Belong. It's not just sibling relationships that may suffer in foster care. Often children taken from their homes are placed with strangers when there is another option that would be familiar to the kids, like a distant relative or a friend of the family. We're able to start telling America a story that has been such a hush-hush secret. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. So we end up going to, in Spanish Harlem to this big old park, and I could tell like people were related to me because they looked like me. When Sixto Cancel was a baby, he was placed in foster care. His mother struggled with addiction and poverty. He never knew his father. So he grew up with strangers. For a brief time, he was adopted, but that situation became abusive, so he landed back in foster care and stayed there through his adolescence. Then, one day when Sixto Cancel was in his 20s, he was visiting an older sister who lived in New York. And my sister goes to me, hey, there's a family reunion. Would you like to go? And I was just first so flabbergasted that, you know, it's the day of and you're telling me, right? Like, this is something that as someone who grows up your entire life in foster care, kind of wondering who you are, kind of wondering, like, why are you not part of a family? Like, why haven't someone actually, like, adopted you and, like, officially um, created, you know, made you part of their forever family? Like, this is a moment. So that is how Sixto Cancel ended up in a park in Spanish Harlem, surrounded by relatives on his father's side. Um, It was a very emotional experience to be in a place where you're like, how did you not know like all of these people existed? People were super accepting. People were very much like, wow, we didn't know our uncle had another uh, son. We didn't know that you existed. And then halfway through this, I become just numb because I look around and I start to realize that four of my aunts and uncles and, and, and a cousin are actually foster adoptive parents and that they've been adopting and fostering for over 35 years. 
And at that moment, I felt like something was just like so robbed from me. You know, all your life you grow up thinking there's not enough homes, you don't fit in the homes that you've been in. And just just a little bit of ways, you had all this family who were already approved to foster, already have adopted other people's children um, to be part of a family, and that they've incorporated them into the family in a very loving um, way. And so I immediately I pulled out my phone and I just Google mapped to the last foster home that I was in. And it was 58 miles away. And, and, and that's where I literally couldn't emotionally just be present to the rest of the experience. Because at that point, I just felt like, wow, I know the system is um, needs improvement, but this right here is probably like the ultimate representation of how our child welfare system is broken. I will never forget that I could have lived with people who loved me. That was the title of an essay Sixto Cancel would publish in the New York Times years later after founding a nonprofit called Think of Us. The organization listens to people who've been in foster care and focuses on what they say needs changing. Doing more to place children with kin tops the list. Every child should be placed in a family setting, right? And it, whenever we can do that with someone who's not a stranger to the young person, that's because they're uh, an uncle, grandma, cousin, or a church member, or an actual teacher. or Even somebody who's not related then. You'd like to see, does the definition of kin actually include that in our current foster care system? So some states have gone there. Some mm-hmm. states like Washington have actually said, like, that Ken is inclusive of your coach, of your teachers, of people who have been in your life for a long time, mm-hmm. right? And for some states, it doesn't include that. I would love to see folks um, in the young person's life be able to step up. And we know that there are certain things that are unfair. Like in certain states, if you don't have a recycling bin, then that might jeopardize your ability to get licensed on time, right? Um, We know in one state in particular, 30% of the families that were being failed to be licensed was because they didn't have a fire extinguisher. And so the solution to that was literally to send an advance notice to those families saying, hey, Please have a fire extinguisher and carry a fire extinguisher in that trunk of the car. So we have some rules on the books that, you know, were created a very long time ago that need some revisiting. It feels sometimes impossible to actually raise your hand and say, I would like to foster my nephew, my niece, um, you know, my relative who's in this very bad situation. Do do family members who raise a hand or a kin, a kin individual in a community who raises the hand and says, I can, you know, I can care for this child. Uh, do they get the same kinds of resources as a foster home that's already part of the system and officially sanctioned? The answer is no at a, a system, national-wide systemic level. Some states have started to provide the same resources. On average, a foster parent will get around $800 a month to support um, taking care of a, a, a of a child, right? And that's meant to be a reimbursement and not, a, not an actual payment, right? And so when a relative raises their hand, sometimes the system will transfer guardianship. And it won't come with the $800 of of support, but also it won't come with the health insurance or it won't come with the actual, you know, supports and and, and services that help you heal from the trauma that you've had to experience. If there's been a removal, you may have experienced neglect, you may have experienced physical, sexual abuse. And so what we see across the country is that we are not equipping families enough to actually take in their relatives, even though we know that that can be one of the strongest positive outcomes for that child. Again, the level of support families receive to foster a relative varies from state to state. But Cancel says all states will have to get better at finding loving, familiar homes for children if they're going to eliminate group homes. That's another of his nonprofit's top priorities. When young people are placed in these group home settings, they're surrounded by paid staff who most of the time are underpaid, right? They're undervalued. And they are people who literally, by definition, cannot actually create a loving relationship with you. One in seven children in foster care in this country lives in a group home setting. These institutions are intended to be a placement of last resort for kids with specialized health or behavioral issues. But they also catch the overflow when there's a shortage of foster home placements in a community. 
Sixto Cancel is haunted by what happened to his brother. You know, my little brother was nine when he went to uh, his first group home. And the reasoning back then was he was emotionally disturbed because his adopted mother had died. And I think that was more reason for him to be in a setting where he knew people, not with strangers who were paid, right? And then he he had behaviors that continued to elevate the group home, the, the, the need for intervention in these different uh, group homes, but the interventions weren't working, right? How do you have a nine-year-old who spent the next nine years of his life in different institutional settings? It was the experiences that he was actually getting there, the lack of love, the lack of actual people caring for him as a family member that I believe really broke him. Cancel says that finding more loving, familiar places for children to live also requires taking a hard look at racial biases that may fuel a caseworker's decision about what's best for a child. I think that there are people in child welfare, um, some child welfare workers who, you know, have had a very limited experience with people of color. And when it comes down to it, they're thinking that a young person might be better off in a place that looks completely different than the neighborhoods that we come from. And what we know is that young people who actually are placed with family, they fare better. Taking us from our community, taking us away from um, where we have grown up, where we know people, you know, we see the research doesn't actually suggest that it is any that we're better off because of that type of intervention. Racial bias can also drive the initial contact people of color have with the child welfare system. Black families are more likely to be reported for possible abuse or neglect. According to the American Public Health Journal, 53% of all Black families, 53% of all Black families will experience a child abuse investigation before their child's 18. Cancel says the vast majority of those allegations, 85%, turn out to not warrant intervention and end up being dismissed. But any time a child welfare worker visits a home to check out a report, the risk of a child being removed from that home jumps. And Cancel says most of the calls that come into child welfare hotlines are not for abuse, they're for neglect, which is easily confused with poverty. We have criminalized poverty to the extent where when we see a family that's in need, a child who has not been able to shower because maybe the water's cut off, a child who's extra hungry and storing food from a cafeteria. Those become child abuse investigation calls. And I believe we can live in a world where those calls might be able to go somewhere else, right? Why is it that we have to go ahead and report them to the authorities that can take their child away? I just don't believe that the abuse hotline is the place to actually bring them to. This is a poverty issue for so many Americans. Cancel wonders how his own life might have been different if someone had intervened on his mother's behalf when she was a child. The family was poor. She was sexually abused by her stepfather. But when she told her mother... Her mother had such a tough decision to make, which was to either take all her kids and her and leave um, her husband at the time, or she put out my mother um, because she couldn't see a way to survive. So Cancel's mother was kicked out of the house, left to fend for herself at the age of 12. Poverty, um, you know, really was the gateway to drugs for her. And so when I think about what the interventions that our system is offering, like, yes, rehab should be part of the story. Yes, parenting classes may have been something that she needed. But what she really needed was to deal with the trauma of that happened to her when she was 12, to deal with the years of having to be homeless and instably housed and the abuses that she experienced going from place to place. If Sixto Cancel's mother had received the help she needed, might she have been able to maintain a stable home for him and his siblings? Could we have fewer children in foster care in this country, fewer children suffering the harm of being removed from their families, if somehow the system could intervene before poverty, addiction, and trauma spiral into crisis. That is where Molly Tierney's heart and head are these days. She's the consultant at Accenture, who spent 25 years as a caseworker and administrator in child welfare. The aha moment for her came when she took charge of child welfare for the city of Baltimore in 2008. It was one of the most troubled agencies of its kind in the country when she arrived. They struggled to keep track of children in foster care. A large share were living in group homes, kids lingered in foster care for years. Some were suffering injury and death. 
Tierney was on a mission to fix it. I believed in my heart that if I could get it to work, when I could, if I could turn the wheels of government and get it to do its job, then we would help people. And she did. We reduced the number of kids in foster care by 72%. We reduced the number of kids in group homes by 89%. I could go on. It's a great proof point for what's possible. And I felt like I was climbing to the top of a precipice and I couldn't wait to look out over the edge and see what was possible, see the way we could actually help people. And when I got to the top of that metaphorical precipice, that is when I got to understand what I have done is made a system that does a really great job of taking other people's children. And it broke my heart to imagine that I could live to be 80 and that's what I would have to say to myself. And I couldn't stand it. She realized that the child welfare system in America was a crisis response system. Caseworkers are like firefighters running into a burning house, carrying children to safety. But could the fire have been prevented entirely? Was there a chance to intervene earlier? At the very first sign, there's a challenge. Like, so for instance, when a hospital has a 15-year-old who gives birth, I think that that's a house that we should be rushing into as a community. Is it child welfare? Is it public health that would go in and say, well, 15-year-old just had a baby. This is going to be really hard anyway. You cut it. Let's figure out how we can support you so that you can continue to go to school so that you understand all the developmental milestones your kid needs to be making and that you get the help that you need to do that. That kind of intervention earlier is way more art than it is science. The science part is just being willing to share that data that's popping up. Tierney says schools, hospitals, social service agencies all have data points that could form the early warning system she's talking about. But getting access to that data would require a shift in cultural norms and maybe even changes to privacy laws. Because you can trust and believe every hospital that has a 15-year-old who gives birth will say, HIPAA, I can't tell anyone. And I think, yeah, yeah, that's one version of it. That's one way of thinking about it. It's the presumption of privacy and that everyone needs it and that everyone has it. Hmm. And I think, I don't know about that. I don't know that that that's what all of those federal regulations mean. Uh, I think that they shouldn't, I don't think they were designed to inhibit our ability to reach out and help when a member of our community is struggling and that's how they're being used. So there, there does have to, there would have to be a shift around family, supporting families, preserving families rather than Yep. Supporting and protecting kids. I mean, hopefully you end, you end up in the same place with both, both. But you know, the kids are are protected if you're supporting the family. But but this, I believe. So it's a family welfare system instead of a child welfare system. I think that's right. That's really well said. That's a good one because I think there are places around the country that are trying, beginning to try to think about that, and they're wondering what to call it. Family welfare is a good one. It would almost be more of an expansion of you would take some of these things that don't currently fall under the um, signs of child abuse I am required to report because there is that, right? Like hospitals, nurses, teachers are are required by law to report um, to authorities when they believe that child abuse or neglect is taking place. And so, so we could potentially sort of put some of these other warning signs maybe under a similar framework, but we'd have to be careful that it wouldn't result in like criminalization or yes. stigmatization or something of, of families. It has to result in, gosh, how can I help? Like, let me understand if you, if there's a household where a four-year-old stopped going to school, then we could pop around and say, hey, we just noticed a kid wasn't going to school. I wanted to talk to him about how important it is to go to school. And what, tell us what's going on. And when we learn, well, I don't know what you're going to learn is the single greatest reason kids, little kids are missing school in this country is untreated asthma. Well, there's a problem with a solution. That's pretty simple. You got to call public health and get make sure that kid has subspecialty care that gets them on an asthma plan that means that they can still go to school because there's no reason on God's green earth that a kid with asthma isn't going to school every day. Except hmm. that the family's not getting the support they need from and the support they need around that child's health. And that's available. Plenty of people would want to lean in and help that. That's just but one example. But I think that is sort of the approach is looking for what problem can I help this family solve, this family and their children, not to walk in and see children as separate from their parents, because children, of course, only exist in the context of their families. 
And if we can go in and see them in that context, then we'd be thinking about, well, how can I help solve this problem? Do you think there is an appropriate role for us, like just people, like people who care and we're not social workers and we're not the government? It's the most important role. It, it, is, it is the thing that's going to turn the key in the lock because any other choice, waiting for government to do it, right, is to stand in judgment and suspicion of our neighbor. Doing it ourselves is an act of love, right? Or if I, I know a family down the block is struggling, I'm like, all right, well, we'll just cook a little extra dinner and I'll drop some off, it's fine. Or I'll invite them over for dinner or, you know, like, that is, the, that is the kind of thing that is going to stabilize families. Because now, you, that, in that scenario, you have a parent who's struggling, who's feeling less isolated, feels like they have somebody I can turn to. And I'm not trying to oversimplify it. I know it's hard. I know it is really hard. And it feels risky. And it feels maybe even confrontational. And I think, oh, love is never a confrontation. And if we as a people can do that as an act of love, if we can decide, we can get in the place of knowing that children are a public good, that they, we're, that that is the reason any of us are on this planet is to care for them and for each other, then I think that would put us in a different position instead of waiting for some authority to police it. I think that sh- those should, now, I think those should be the rarest of times when the authority has to police it, because as I said to you before, I, there is a moment when it's time. It's time to send the cops in and the child protection in. It's time. But there's so much we can do before that moment arrives. There's so much we could do that would make that moment happen. That would make that moment very rare. And that I feel like that would be a gift for all of us. Thanks to Molly Tierney at Accenture, Sixto Council with Think of Us, Lynn Price at Camp to Belong, Dalton Shump at KVC, and Abby in Kansas for helping us explore how strengthening families could be more central to the child welfare system in America. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Today's episode was produced by Ciara Hewlett, Cleon Wall, and James Hoops, with help from me. We had music and sound design by Jacob Molaski, Christian Mockatel, and the post-production team at BYU Broadcasting. If you are enjoying Top of Mind, please rate and review the podcast wherever you listen. That'll help others to find us and feel the power of thinking again. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.